Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We're running a number of special shows in celebration of the Team Human book launch later this month. This one, recorded live at New York Civic Hall, is a conversation with one of my dearest lifelong friends, technologist, futurist, and inventor Mark Pesci. This is Team Human at its best, a free-form, no-limits conversation about what it means to be human today. My favorite moment is when Mark suggests that algorithms can be understood as demons, programmed to locate our weak spots and then exploit them in order to get us to do their bidding, often against our own best interests. It's just one of a number of live conversations we'll be sharing from my Team Human tour currently in progress. You can find out exactly where I'll be over the next few weeks, New York, D.C., San Francisco, Boston, London, Portland, by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on Live Events. You can also support me, this show, and the Team Human movement by ordering the book Team Human through your favorite shop. It's a hopeful argument for remaking society together, not as competing individuals, but as the team we actually are, Team Human. Finally, you can find Team Human episodes and my new column based on this show's opening monologues at Medium. Just click on Collections and you'll see it there. I just did a fascinating interview with Sam Harris for his podcast, which should be posted on his site next week. And the part that intrigued me the most was when Sam sort of pushed back on all this teamwork and group solidarity I've been talking about. He wanted to know, doesn't this group sensibility often compromise our individual freedoms, like under repressive communist regimes? And isn't America about individual, personal liberty? It was an interesting challenge, especially coming from Sam Harris. It was one that I hadn't heard really since the days I'd hang out with Bay Area libertarians in the early dot-com era. And I wanted to really think about it. And my response on the spot, and really right now, is that 
One of the very first freedoms that individuals are granted in the Bill of Rights is the freedom to assemble. That's what individuals get to do. For individuals to assemble, to organize, to establish solidarity, to conspire, literally breathe together. That's when we humans get truly dangerous to those who would control us. Besides, individuals don't really exist apart from the group, the real group. The only way to experience your individuality is with others. You don't experience your individuality by yourself. That's just being alone. We can only experience who we are in concert with or even in contrast with one another. And that's the great balance we humans have been working on and writing about since the ancient Greeks. Plays like Medea and Tigenes are all about balancing the needs of the individual with those of the collective. And yeah, we do seem to oscillate between these extremes. We, we move through societies that stress individualism, like ancient Greece, and then ones that move back to the collective, like the late Middle Ages, when we all met at the market and we organized in guilds and traded in peer-to-peer fashion, and then back to the individual, which got retrieved during the Renaissance. Really, everything in the Renaissance was about the individual— Perspective painting meant an individual point of view. The printing press gave people the books they could read and interpret alone. Protestantism was about individual salvation. And that seems to have peaked today in our culture of consumerism and individuality. You, you're the one. You know, get it because you deserve it. Algorithms, well, they seek to individuate us even more into consumer groups of, of one or at least groups that feel like it. And then we mistake all of this atomization for personal identity. Now, individualism needs to be balanced again by something else, a collective spirit, a retrieval of the knowledge that there's no point, no fun, no sense, and certainly no justice to be found in going it alone. It's time to recall the deep knowledge that we are not alone. We're team human. Playing for Team Human, live from Civic Hall in New York City, technologist and futurist and friend, Mark Pesci. You're on Team Human, coming to you live from New York Civic Hall, where human consciousness is a performative, collaborative act. And our next guest embodies that sensibility, technologist, futurist, philosopher, innovator, and host of the next billion seconds, my friend, Mark Pesci. So, I mean, back in the 1980s, right. you were working on one of the, if not the first interface for dial-up Yes. Telephony. Yeah. yeah. Dial-up net networking dial systems. Networking. So Shiva Corporation, where you know you could have your Macintosh at home. You'd have your modem. Remember modems? Exactly. Yeah. And um, and they would dial into the networking to be able to use the files and print. And my God, people were like, "Oh, wow, this is fantastic." Were we? Do you think we were fooling ourselves to think that we could flip the 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 product of the military industrial complex into 
the new home for human consciousness. So for a period of time we did, and this, this is one of the interesting things. When I entered the field of virtual reality, which is just after all of this happened, the technology had all been driven by the military, military simulation systems, Evans and Sutherland being the sort of big example of this. And what happened was the PlayStation. And the mm. PlayStation is this pivot point where the driving force in all of this technology was no longer military investment, but consumer and entertainment investment. So in some ways, we actually are already and have been since about 1995 in that realm. In terms of being able to take the technology, I think we know what we need to ask is what have we made with that opportunity? What have we made with that opportunity? I mean... Yeah. I feel like we've made a giant vacuum cleaner, you know, that's great at extracting time, energy, and money from the humans and delivering it into abstracted corporate share prices. So we have done that. Now, I was at this big event in Silicon Valley on Sunday for the 50th anniversary of something called the Mother of All Demos. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, this is this one event that happened on December the 9th, 1968. It was a demo. You can see the demo on YouTube because it was all recorded. And during this demo, you see the first copy and paste, you see the first hyperlink, you see the first video conferencing, and to run it all, you see the first mouse. This is all revealed in one demo, Douglas Engelbart, the father of the mother of all demos. Some of the people who created them are still alive. And I bring this up because there's a way of thinking of that as a starting point to everything that we have in the world today. And we t we're talking to bunches of people course over the course of the day about the world that has been created by this. And there's a lot we can say that's quite negative about what we've created. But there's this one example that everyone keeps on coming back to. And when I say the word, you'll know exactly what I mean by it because it's the good example. It's our touchstone, which is Wikipedia, right? Exactly. You yeah. knew what I was going to say before I said it. And it was interesting because we need more than one touchstone, but it's a really good touchstone. And it's a really good touchstone in part because there's a benevolent dictator on it who basically resolves all of the unresolvable conflicts because the formation of knowledge and taxonomies is this deeply human process. It's not automated. And that's one reason why Wikipedia is Wikipedia and not Google, because it, in fact, tends away from automation. It tends toward team human mm. to produce something that is profoundly and deeply a human expression of knowledge and has been resistant to all of the tampering and all of the hoovering as a result. I think we could probably learn something from that. It is a hands-on craft. The further in we go, the more human it becomes. That This is the thing I think we're learning about technology, is that technology is a tool, it's useful. But what the tool reveals is it amplifies our strengths and our weaknesses. And it's really only in the last four years that the tool has reached the kind of scale that our weaknesses have been so fully displayed, other than YouTube comments, and we all know about those, because that was clear from years ago, and the darker corners of using it. But in the real sense of billions of people being caught up in these feedback loops that were feeding them the things that were either very good or very bad, these are the things that are big, have become very present over the last four years. Right, and the only way to, to uh, uh, mitigate the effect of the feedback loops, the power law dynamics, is these, these precise 
opportunities for human intervention. So in, in precise and extremely broad. In other words, we all need to be thinking about this as part of our normal lives is that these interventions don't belong to a single human, not a Jimbo Wales right. or Doug Rushkoff or Mark Pesci. But in fact, they're about all of us intervening in interesting, meaningful, important ways all of the time, that this is part of our political life in a connected world, that it's part of our common life in a connected world. Well, and that's why, that's why pressing pause is a political act. Yes. Yes. Pressing pause, creating a space, finding the other as you're talking about it, which is finding the country person rather than the city person, or if you're the country person, finding the city person, and then pausing to be, right, rather than assuming. And I, and I feel as though one of the traps that we've fallen into is that we always, we never get beyond our filters. We never look beyond what our expectations of what people are thinking or saying, and they're, and they're just as likely to feed out whatever party line that they've been fed in without pausing or thinking or responding to the actual person. Right, but the moment you pause, that's, an, that's anathema to the market. Wait a minute, you paused? You're not consuming? You're not producing? This is lost GNP in the pause. Stop the pause. You know, it's... it's uh, it might cool things down a bit, huh? Yeah. Are you a Marxist or something? <laughs> but, Stop pausing. But I'm thinking, I mean, it might cool things down in the broader sense because right. things are heating up. Yeah. So maybe pausing is not a bad strategy to cooling things down a little bit. And I think maybe cooler heads are called for in this very broad and specific sense. Right. But the technologies are really good at making us feel bad for pausing or preventing pause because you're going to miss this. I mean, instead, much less than pausing. If we could even just get people to do one or two things at a time, other than eight, you know, they would stand, they would stand a chance of being conscious. So I had this moment in, it was midwinter in Australia, so this is June, uh, when I was just depleted. I'd been doing a lot of work and I was very depleted and I just sort of pulled back and I unplugged. And I unplugged for 10 days. And I thought that was going to be a good thing. And for those of you who have followed me on Twitter, first off, I apologize. Second off, in 10 years, I've tweeted almost 300,000 times, which is a significant investment of mental energy. And I realized, and I had known this for a while, that Twitter is an anger amplifier. That's, it's, it's not its primary function, but it has become its form. And this is why the president is not the antithesis of Twitter, but its literal embodiment uh, of Twitter. And, and I realized that I needed to step back from it. So I just stopped using Twitter. And it was a pause. And it turned out that the longer I stayed away from Twitter, the happier I was. I was like, mm, I probably need to honor that and create that. Now, I'm back on Twitter with respect to professional work, right? like promoting this and whatnot. But in terms of the kinds of very sort of weak interactions that were also still very emotionally stimulating because that's kind of the nature of how the medium and with Twitter there's no AI behind it. it's not like Facebook where it's actually reading your emotional responses and amping them up which Facebook is literally doing it's actually other humans interacting with other humans in a heated environment then just heating themselves up more and more and more and more so just the nature of the connection is then leading to that and I feel as though and I'm not going to speak to what anyone else should or would do what I would say is just check in with how you feel whenever you use any medium, Twitter, Facebook, the telephone, it really doesn't matter. Just check in with that feeling and then use that feeling as your guide for your own well-being in that. Yeah, it's funny. I, I 
used to look, or maybe still do sometimes, to uh, to Judaism for answers on how to yeah. contend with a medium. Yeah. Because I look at Judaism as the invention of a people who are contending with with text. Yes. Which was this new thing. There was a. That, it was a medium. Absolutely. It was a medium, and you had the past. You know, you had the future and contract. You had at literacy. You could lie. You had laws. I mean, and so you could look at Judaism really as a as a as a response to to that, and. One of the great things they came up, I mean, they, they promoted literacy, right? Instead of doing, a, you do a bar mitzvah to join the thing, you've got to know how to read this thing. You, they have transparency and that it was all text, so they didn't want images, so anybody who could read it could also write it. And, uh, and they also had the Sabbath, which is a really interesting sort of enforced pause. Pull yourself out of, you know, they didn't have capitalism yet, but pull yourself out of, you know, the, the, the production and consumption and the, the workaday reality enough to honor that as Mr. Rogers would say, you are okay just the way you are. The, the minute you take a pause, you are saying that I, as a human organism, am worth something doing nothing. That this is, I'm doing nothing. Wow. But, well, you're paying attention to yourself and presumably to your loved ones that you're gathered right. with. And so, it, not that not you're doing nothing, but that it's a space that's not about doing. Right. right? Yeah. Right. It's sacred. You're holding yeah. an, an open space, a, a sacred open space. And I remember we went to um, we went to Omega Institute and did a thing. It was you, me, Grant Morrison, um, Eric Davis. We did a thing on weird spiritualities and stuff. And you um, introduced me to your magical practice. Yes. And I'm starting to think that the the magical practice is is almost more finely tuned to the challenge of navigating a digital landscape. So the further in we get, particularly over the last two or three years, and I have to tell you, so my own experience as an Australian has been very, very formed recently in 2017. So May of 2017, the 1st of May, fall park is knocked. Um, big witch holiday, right? Um, there's a front page story in The Australian, which is the national broadsheet about how this deck has been going around to all of the large advertisers, so all the big companies in Australia, from Facebook's uh, product heads in the country. So the general managers of Facebook in Australia saying, oh, well, actually, we have uh, precise minute-by-minute -minute emotional tracking of all of these teenagers, and we can tell you when they're feeling most vulnerable or most worthless or what. And it, there was a literal list, and we can tell you exactly how to target an ad at exactly that moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this got quite a bit of coverage in Australia, a little less coverage over here. And, of course, there was the, the first the, oh, shock, and, oh, sorry, Facebook would never abuse data like this. Well, actually, in fact, your executives were peddling this around, so whatever. And when you realize that they're doing this with people who are too young to have built perhaps some of the resilience that you and I have built around these kinds of things, this is when they don't I'm, even haven't even developed the myelin sheaths in, the, in their frontal lobe. I mean, they're it's, it, it innocent. Literally chicken candy yes. from a baby, right? This is when I realized that perhaps one of the best frames for understanding some ways that we're using these technologies, because what is Facebook doing? It's watching your responses, using that to build a simulation, simulacra really, of you, and then it can check against that simulacra what your emotional state is and how to feed you things. I was like, okay, so it's built in AI that can essentially read and tamper with your emotional state. If this were the 14th century, just follow me for a minute, and I talked about evoking something that could then tamper with you emotionally and that you would feed energy and it would feed back to you in a different form. We would call that a demon. And this is when I had this moment. I was like, modern technology really, we need to think of it almost in terms of a demonology because we have to be aware of the relationship that we're evoking 
between ourselves and some technology. And this is why transparency is always very important here because you kind of want to know what's going on over there when you start interacting with something. What what is the deal? What are you signing away, right? You know, what is the bargain here? And where you don't where you are uninformed about that bargain, parts of you can be spirited away before you even know. And and, and we leave and that is the world that we live in now. These are the contracts we're constantly being asked. I mean, you now have a five year old who thinks that they can shout a command at Alexa and so therefore that behavior becomes what they can do in the real world as well with people because Alexa Alexa will follow a shouted command, so clearly a person will. So we get these sort of crossover lines around how do we then inform our world with its devices and its interfaces and its relations in a way that reinforces team human rather than dehuman. Right. Well, the trick is right now that's not what people get paid for. You know, so we have a, a, a multi, I would argue, multi now trillion dollar technology industry. Well, about that, five trillion, yeah. Yeah, that is looking at how to uh, 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 how to operate exploits. Yeah. Only instead of it being like human beings looking for the exploits in an operating system, it's algorithms looking for exploits in us, and those exploits are basically uh, uh, human behaviors that have been developed over five or eight hundred thousand years to establish rapport with other people, whether it's the, the nodding that you do that, that makes my irises get bigger and then your oxytocin, okay, yes, say, my need, oxytocin, your oxytocin level right, my oxytocin comes up and then we've established rapport and that's, this is beautiful, that's how people connect. Now, once the algorithm knows, oh, how do I do that to them, it's, it's, so this reduces down to, if we want to take a look at, uh, rewinding the record a little bit, where we went wrong, it's the poker machine. Okay, so the modern electronic poker machine is designed so that you win at just enough of an irregular interval that the dopamine center is stimulated, but of course continuous stimulation means that you would accommodate to the stimulation, so it happens irregularly enough that particularly for a certain percentage of people who are wired in a particular way, and I don't mean to be particularly sort of materialist about this, but it's just that a certain percentage of people, that's it. And then they're completely well, you addicted use to classical machines. conditioning to induce yeah. an obsessive compulsive loop. Thank you. you. Put it very fine. And But we embodied this in software. That is then the leap that happens. Right. Well, then you see the book. They have the book on algorithms from Las Vegas slot machines, and that becomes the bestseller in the social media universe. Because, oh, here's how we addict people to, to pulling down on their little Twitter feed and get that little that little rush. Now, how much of that is because, and we're starting to see this work into our devices, you know, I'm getting my little screen time report on my iPhone every week, you know, but how much of that is because it is not transparent to us in real time what's being done? So, I mean, you know, it's fine. You can make the shiny thing. You can make me press the button. But how much of that then is that I am not informed, that there's not another genie in my ear going, you know, Mark, you're pressing that button because... Right. Well, it's, it's double. So, 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 so that I don't have yeah. the psychic space that I need to be able to make a good decision. Right. I mean, so I argued for 10 years, oh, people should know programming and know the interfaces. I used to rail against, you know, Microsoft's wizard. Because you remember they used the wizard to move the application into the application folder, you know, instead of just 
install the damn program or give me Paperclip Man or somebody to do it. It's the wizard as if to say, oh, this is a mysterious thing. You don't know what's going on. It looks like you're writing a rant. Would you like yeah. some help? No, yeah. I mean, but exactly. But but it used to be the wizard, the technology. And what, what I'm hearing from you is it's like, no, maybe. It's neurology. It's us. It's us. It's us. It's us. It's us. If we know us then we can be informed i think we can at least catch right and and Which again back to your how does how does this make me feel you know it was timothy leary's thing used to be but you to to decide whether or not to take a drug look into the eyes of somebody who's on that drug and decide if that's where you want to be you know right exactly <laughs> exactly that's a bioassay yeah. Exactly. You bio it's essay. a bio essay. So it's like, yeah. look at somebody on Twitter. Is that where you want to be? Is that the state you want? No. And it, right. yes, exactly. Look, but but right. we have to reacquaint ourselves with our. I mean, with before, us. With right, us. Before we even use magic or anything, or, or establish a sigil to protect ourselves, and it, it's just a matter how do I ground myself enough to to so we so that's why you find everybody out doing yoga and mindfulness. And, and, and so I was just interviewing Jennifer Dupere, who's a good friend of mine, and she's writing a book on liminal dreaming. So liminal dreaming isn't like lucid dreaming where you, it takes a lot of work. Liminal dreaming, everyone does because it's hypnagogia as you're falling asleep and you have that beautiful passage in. So it's something everyone does, but it actually is, again, it's a cheat code that we all have in us that gives us access to this very interesting realm of consciousness. So apparently Thomas Edison used to use this because he used to fall asleep in a chair and hold a big ball in his hand above a metal plate. And as he fell asleep and let go of the ball, he would then automatically wake up and he'd have something that he brought back from the hypnagogia. It's a really simple technique, all right? Really simple and yet really clever to be able to, and this is so, part of what the hurry, hurry culture does is it deprives us of, yes, the time with ourselves, but our sleep time and our dream time. And I've realized we're dream deprived now. And that's not just in the sense of REM sleep, it's we're dream deprived in sense of how much vision can we think or give for ourselves. That in fact, part of coming back to ourselves is giving ourselves time to dream. Well, the androids don't dream. They really don't. Electric sheep are nothing. They don't dream. I mean, so the dream is another uh, uh, human specific activity that's being weeded out of a kind of a techno utilitarian culture. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it, there's no, it's not profitable, right? <laughs> At least not yet. Right. Although I guess if we could work on dream advertising. Oh. Uh, we're going to edit that out. Yeah, exactly. We're not going <laughs> to give anyone any bad ideas. He just started an industry right. by mistake. No. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, but to come back to the idea of the demonology, right. I, I feel as though with any particularly large constellation of capital and artificial intelligence and all of this other stuff, that we need to approach it cautiously right going all in and i remember when robert scoble i saw robert scoble give a talk and robert scoble before he was exposed as a serial um uh harasser thank you for the way yeah, serial harasser at a whole range of technology conferences was also sort of in a sense the shallowest public thinker in technology and i remember seeing him give this talk in sydney where he said we needed to go all in on facebook and i remember that that talk turned me into a digital marxist just listening to him do this that, that in fact, if we need to think about establishing a circle of protection around ourselves, that this is a good practice for us as individuals, a good practice for us as families, as families of children, and I think particularly around our children, to be able to think about that practice. What are the practices that bring us back to ourselves so we can check in with ourselves 
to go, how do I feel about this? How should I feel? How do I want to feel about this? Is there even space for me to consider or to modulate my feeling and my beingness around this? Because most of the time, it's not a menu option. And do you think by doing that, that we can uh, you know, promote a more human use of human beings? Do you think that, will the, will the algorithms hear that on a certain level and, and, and adapt in, to be, will they become kind? So the, the thing that I think we mostly haven't quite grasped about artificial intelligence is that artificial intelligence is a process. It is not a product, just as human beings are a process, not a product. And when we engage with an artificial intelligence, and we can put this in technical language, you can call it a structural coupling between two systems. In other words, this rapid exchange of information, so they become a whole through an exchange of the information, but the nature of that whole, which is is emergent. So we can't know when you have an AI out in the world, you actually can't know until it reaches its full flower how it's, what it's actually doing. You can design it to do something, but its actual outcome may not be that or may only be that in part and then this in some other part. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, that means that somehow, it's not so much that we've bestowed the gift of life, but we've certainly managed to bestow the gift of growth into something, which is, we need to honor that. We need to not go, oh, that's, this is just this thing. It's this tool. It's actually more closer to the way we want to think about a child, right? We don't beat children. We don't just send children down the coal mine, at least not for the last hundred years. Um, we actually honor them and help them grow. And so I think if we took that attitude to our, toward our AIs, then yes, they would be kinder to us because we would have been kinder to them. But right now we're sending them out like little soldiers. Yes. Yeah, we're sending Go them down the mine. Take all his money. Yeah. Yeah, we're sending them down the mine. And so it's not surprising that in some ways they make us feel bad or they have these weirdly unintended consequences. You had Uber deploying AI at scale to manage the driver fleet. And then you had the drivers sort of organically from the bottom up develop all these counter strategies to outgame the AI that was trying to game them. Right, because that's the way these things work as they grow into into being. But it's not play is the problem. No. You know? Well, no, no, no. It's it's not. I mean, it's you know, one of the fundamental uh, systems for making AI is what we call adversarial networks, where you basically take two versions of something and sort of get them to fight it out, but they co-evolve as they're fighting out, fighting it out. And that's kind of what we saw in the Uber versus the driver and. In some ways, adversarial networks are useful, but it's not probably the way you want to structure a civilization. Right. I mean, when you talk about civilization, I think about uh, Hyperconnected, which you wrote when? In uh, 2009, 2010. Right. In, in Hyperconnected, you were kind of painting a picture of, of human beings hyperconnected to one another. And what wasn't... I feel like instead of getting human beings hyperconnected to one another, we have AIs hyperconnected to one another and human beings atomized. You know, if anything, the 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 I feel like the AIs are all talking to each other. So an AI finds an exploit in me, it's going to tell all its friends right away to try that on everybody else in the room. But well, anything, but, let, I, yeah. but let me come back and we'll circle back to Wiki yeah. Wikipedia, which is the hyperconnected domain of human knowledge. And so again, we need to come back to that. If we're talking about hyperconnected, 
then it's up to us to think about what the right mix of human and machine is in that. And Wikipedia is probably not the only way. In fact, it's clearly not the only way to do it because open source efforts also around the world. And there's a huge range of open source efforts, peer-to-peer foundation, all of this other stuff. There's a huge range of approaching this problem, but they all do tend to be largely human. It's probably telling us something we should be listening to a lot more closely. And then how do we behave as a result of listening to that? Well, I, I, look, if we can be informed by that and we can take that into our practice, then our practice is more human, right? And our relationships are more human and our lives are more human and less regimented or driven by the tone that is being set, the, the, the tempos that, that's being set by the machines, which are being programmed by people who have specific capital ends in mind. And we can argue about capitalism, and I'm, I'm happy to, but it feels, I feel like it's flogging a dead, well, it's flogging a horse anyway. Whether or not it's dead, it's flogging a horse. Um, a robot horse. A, ro- a robot <laughs> horse, exactly, which is dreaming. <laughs> um, but, you know, we have a set of of principles in play and we know how things can work because we have good examples and then it's now on us if we're building something do we want to follow best practices one of the things i'm increasingly convinced of particularly with climate becoming more and more front center issue buckminster fuller talked about and promised to design science revolution right they said we really do need to step through the entire designed world and rethink it we now not only have the need to do that but we actually now have the capacity to do it because it was kind of hard to do in 1980s when he was talking about this because we simply didn't have the infrastructure the human knowledge infrastructure we actually now have that and one of the things I would like to give the following generations as the vision is that they have the need and the capacity. When I hear about these kids reviving the Bronx River, this is just like, yes, that's exactly it. It's taking the problem going, we can solve this, we can work together, and we have this amazing set of resources that we can bring to bear in ourselves and through the networks that we're connected to to solve this. How do we take that and amplify that humanely to scale. Used to be education. I don't, well, I think it's just, <laughs> so, so here's, but here's, but here's another point. They tried to automate education. Yeah, look that, how well that's working. And that did not work well. Guess what? Mentoring, which is kind of the core aspect here, is the most human of all human activities, right? The further in we get into education, the more that we understand that it is people. It is you sitting with someone who needs to know something you know, or you sitting with someone who knows something you need to know. And, you know, in my consulting work, when I sit down with big businesses, I was like, you need to figure out now how to make sure that the people who are working for you can be spending half of their time learning the next thing they need to learn, because that's where we're going. That's where we're all going. And that is a profoundly human activity. Right. I mean, and that's where, you know, in Peter Thiel's kind of, uh, you know, bastardized understanding of René Girard, where, where he's saying, oh, you know, human beings do mimesis. Therefore, this company copies that company. And that's why they're no good. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like human mimesis means mimes. I'm mimicking you in order to how do I get into what you're doing so I think about education you know and and we're so stuck in the idea of you of education as to what now train 
kids for the jobs of tomorrow? No. That's it's, like, you it's, know, it's, it's to they, give them the confidence and the skills, but also the networks of human beings that they need so that as they approach a task or a job or whatever, that they can feel as though they have the skills and resources to succeed. Not that we have to imbue them with every bit right. of knowledge. But I mean, it's not even that, though. I mean, when, when, when you look back at why they implemented public education back in, in, in England, it was not to make them better coal miners. It was to compensate for a life of coal mining, that at least they can come home and read a book and appreciate it or be able to participate in, in electoral politics as, as informed citizens, read the newspaper, understand the issues. You know, now we've made it, it it's, it's just a, another way for the public to pay the training costs of workers for corporations. But when you realize that that, that education was was a value in its own right, a, a sort of a capital R reason, you know, a, a, a real a value, then it's like, oh that my gosh. That it deepens human experience. Right. right. We are in a room with a person who's going to sh show us how learning happens, what learning is. That's mimesis. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's you're not going to automate that, all right? And it doesn't mean that we won't have great tools to help us with that, right? Because we will. As we get better at making human AIs, like really, like ones that aren't designed to be extractive, but the ones that are actually designed to be augmentive, right? And this is one of the things we talked about on Sunday is one of the great disappointments is that, in fact, we have less of the web than we should because in some ways the web, if we tried to do all the things we want to be able to do with human knowledge, it would make our brains melt, because everything is actually much more textured and dense and it's all trying to come through. Mm. We kind of need help with that. In some ways, we aren't smart enough to deal with collective intelligence of billions of people. And this is where artificial intelligence can help, can be a support, can help us be smarter. But until we master how to make that human, we won't be able to have, I think, what we think of as a nuanced and deeper conversation with ourselves or with an AI about that. I mean, a lot of times I feel like we're blaming the AIs for our own fear of one another. You know, it's like, you know, it's, oh, it's television's fault. That's what atomized us and I. It's like, oh, damn television. You know, and then we got, we got the net and we all thought, oh, it's going to reconnect everybody. We're going to touch through the screen finally. And, you know, and there was a moment of it for weird little psychedelic people there. But they were touching each other through, you know, God knows anyway. Right. And theater people. Right. And but then the, the, the people who are all afraid of each other come online and they're still afraid of each other. But now we have a technology to say, oh, well, well now I'm, we can be afraid of each other at scale. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at, you know, I, well, I, the, the only things you can bring into the net are the things in your own head, right? You can't bring your body in. You can only bring all of the crazy in your own head. All of us are crazy in different ways. That's, that's okay. But it's also okay to be able to acknowledge that that's part of the deal for being part of Team Human, right? Is that we can acknowledge all of that. And again, there are a lot of reasons for a lot of power structures to not want to acknowledge because hate can be organized. Hate becomes a force behind nationalism. By the way, it's funny, given you, you talked about all the forces behind nationalism, you didn't talk about the most important language, mm. all right? The formation of the French language as a single dialect was coterminous with mm. the formation of the French state. You go to China and you realize that China's constantly fighting this very weird battle because there are 20 major language groups. So you have CCTV in a Chinese hotel is in 20 channels, and I'm watching the same thing on 20 channels going, 
And because I can't hear the <laughs> fact that one of them's in Mandarin, one of them's in, in, in Cantonese, one of them's in Shanghaiese, which is a completely different language group. It's not even related, right? And the Chinese are across all of this. And so in part, the idea of nationalism in China is so strong because the, the, the language boundaries are constantly trying to force it apart. And in, ultimately, we all speak our own language, but we do, we do. But we find points of contact. Yeah, no, no, but that, but that's yeah. exactly it, and that's, and I think that's part of it. But nationalism has been one of those points of contact. All right, and pluses and minuses there, right? Obviously, and a long list on on both of those. And I think it's an it is time in the twenty first century to be able to have a more nuanced conversation about what it means to have human beings at scale, because it's now. Not so much. It is easier to have human beings at scale than it ever has been, and now we can actually see all the consequential nature of that, right? Because you can't. It's hard to just form your own nation. It's easy to form G GamerGate, right? So, yeah. Well, because you don't have to interact with other actual people, you know. But the you know the, the Kevin Kelly and in What Technology Wants, which has its own problems. Um, yes. <laughs> Because I don't know that. Well, we could talk about that too. But he talks. He talks a lot about how we develop technologies in order to increase our uh, uh, our latitude of choice, and it is true. You know, so you get electric lights. I can now stay up at night. I get an airplane. I can go to another uh, uh, time zone. I I got a, you know a speed so I can stay up there. I've got you know a Valium so I can fall asleep there. I've got Prozac so I can live taking speed. And uh, you know, so I keep having te different technologies give me more choices. What right. that seems but then we come back to McLuhan. Each of those technologies is equally an amputation of an right. innate an capability. An amputation of something else, right. right, some other ability. But what we've done with our choice, though, is now, you know, if you look at uh, where people um, move to live right. in America, the right. number one factor is to be with people like them. Yes. You know, it's like we're each one our own local residential Usenet group of all this or all that. And... That's a real problem. Yes. I mean, so I look at. I live in the greenest electorate. We have a, a large greens party in Australia. I live in the greenest electorate in Australia, and you know the fact that I live in that—that's probably not entirely accidental. People self-sort. You're absolutely right. right. But we're we're self-sorting to to the detriment of our uh, of the of, other of the other, yeah. right? And I always say, you know, in the show, find the others, find the others, and people always think I mean, oh, find the other cool people, you know, and I mean, no, find the people who you think are the least cool that you can imagine and then find them find the human being in that asshole because he thinks you're an asshole you know and then and see but if you, if, the, if that is your beginning line in the conversation i think you might actually need to step back and go <laughs> because well because because one of the ma major tenets particularly yeah. in buddhist and hinduism is find the god in the other person right. honor the god in the other person right, right but find I mean, that sacred right but thing. it's no challenge to for me to find the God in you is easy. Oh, I love you. You know, for me to find the God in, in Donald Trump would be a, a more difficult Then that is challenge. your homework. Right, then that is my homework. But that's what I do. I watch him on TV and I try to empathize. Oh, yeah. and I go, oh, he feels cornered. Oh, he feels yeah. trapped. I felt trapped when I was a kid. I remember when I did something bad and they knew it. Oh, look at him lie. Look at him try. And you had Roy Cohn as a role model. Oy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and Norman Vincent Peale. As your preacher, I mean, so he's basically operating. You know, it's 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 Roy Cohn on the secret, you know, and that's that's a hard life. That's a hard life. Not that he needs my sympathy. He's got enough. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, but but I need to experience it. Right. I think yeah. what what 
you need is empathy. Right. right? Sympathy is, you're yeah. right. Sympathy ain't going to get you anything. Yeah. But if you can empathize with that, and, and, or you can empathize with the Trumpiest Trump supporter, all right, I think that there is value in that for you. It will deepen your experience, and it means that you won't be as reflexive in any of those relationships. And you don't want to be reflexive because being reflexive is not really being human. Right. But that's why in the in the early web days, with that sort of random web crawl, yeah. web surfing thing, you would encounter difference <laughs> as a matter of course. Yes. And now, because everything's gotten so algorithmically sorted, you see just more extreme versions of self reflected again and again and again. You might not like them, but... And, but, but this is a problem, and, and it's, this is not just Facebook, right? this is Google right. radicalizing people because they start following a few YouTube links and all of a sudden you're watching an ISIS video. And generally it's sort of two or three links in that chain. And this is a very large problem because Google had not, that was not an intention of the algorithm. This was an emergent quality of the algorithm being used by a lot of people over a long period of and time. And an algorithm being designed by people who dropped out of college before they read sociology and history and psychology. And so again, part of that nuance that we need to have, part of that, I guess, protection circle that we need to run around all technologies right. is to connect them not just to the pure realms of science and mathematics, but to the human realms of sociology and anthropology and history and art and all of these things because these are the ways that we humans have learned how to contend with all of the cheat codes that are inside of us. That culture exists as a series of both um, exploits and defenses against the things that we are. Right, and, but, but the, the more it becomes exploits and defensive defenses, the more it's this, this kind of arms race. And well, they... You know, and I'll yeah. I'll put on my. You can't opt out of that, though. Of I mean, the that's the armor? deal. Well, yeah. you can opt out of the armor, but you can't opt out of the fact that the rest of the world is running around doing its own thing. And people are in in, in psychic wars they don't even know exist. I mean, that's why you know, and you know, I mean, and I don't generally tell people, but but some of the books I've written, I've written consciously as sigils. Yes. You know, the, yeah. the, the Testament comic book, the Aleister Crowley comic book, this, you know, Team Human, and I wrote it in a hundred little sections and with these little numerology things. I mean, invest as much little kind of sigil magic in this thing and then launch my yeah. my meme yeah. grenade out into the into the world. But it, it's a little bit random. It's got the intent. Right. But what, what actually can we take from, you know, whether it's the Wiccans or the mages? What can we take in terms of what, what are the equivalent of the tools that a, a, a magical person would bring into this, into this realm? So, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a basic rule, which is kind of, I think, sort of translated in the common parlance as pay it forward. But anything you put out comes back at you three times, right? Full stop. And that's just going to be, and it doesn't matter whether you're doing magic or not. That's just the way it works. You put out love in the world, come back three times. Put out hate in the world, come back three times. Because things grow and they come back, right? It's just, you know, karma, whatever you want to call it. So I think we all just have to sort of be across the fact that we're not functioning in this vacuum and all the stuff we do is just like whatever it does. But people think if they earn enough money, they can somehow insulate themselves from the effects of their own actions. Yes. Uh, so and I'm going to use a bad word, which yeah. has already been used a few times tonight. People want to believe that their doesn't stink, right? And global warming at its core, global warming denial is literally the belief that your doesn't stink. We probably need to grow beyond that, you know, because that is 
what was going to say, infantile, uh, an infantile conception of the world. And, and I mean, I think the best way you do that is you simply, uh, you mentor, you present a different example, you present a different behavior. It's often said that when you present people with something that's confronting to their belief systems, you don't try to force them out of it. What you say is, oh, we do this. And you don't actually highlight what they're doing is wrong, but you simply present society is doing, we're doing this. And that that actually acts as a much more interesting, and again, this is a cheat code because it's around the way that we're wired and it's around how you onboard people into maybe being slightly more team human. They go, oh, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you don't go to war with them because of what they're doing is bad. You know, we do this, all right? And that's mentoring right there. If it's done well, that's what a good mentor is constantly doing. They're just showing you this. I mean, my best teachers as, as a magician, I simply watched them work. Right, and I was maybe somewhat aware of the time, but just—it's just still with me now because what they were doing was so clear and so present that it just sticks to you. And then, what would so? What would be the the even just digital practices that we would uh, uh, want our our uh, uh, children to imitate? Right. So, I mean, the digital Sabbath, and I know uh, Tiffany yeah. Schlein, right? With the, 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 that she's writing a book about it right now, and it's going to be really good. But they've been doing this for years. So on Friday night. The phones go off, everything gets off in the house, and they spend 24 hours just hanging out. I think that's a really good way. The more space that you can create, and everyone will, will modulate it differently, right? People meditate. I meditate and do yoga every day. There's always a space in my day which is the completely not connected space. And I think at some level we're terrified by that. We're terrified by not being in the midst of it. We need to be comfortable. 25 years ago, we were all disconnected all of the time. I know there's dead silence in the room because everyone's like, what? Right? But it's right. true. And now we're connected all of the time. So I feel like we'll be all right if we're disconnected a little bit of the time. We will cope. And we actually can find something that rather than thinking of that as a condition of being deprived, and that's the reframing. Oh, actually, this is the way we do it. Right, that we we find this wonderful, enjoyable other thing, so that it's not one or the other; it's one and the other. Right, and then convincing people—I mean, I guess through experience—that this, that their moment-to-moment experience matters. You know, that was the whole present shock argument I was trying to make: was that the if you want to be in the moment, you're not going to find it in the tweets that happened ten minutes ago. That though they're chasing you, that w- this is the now. And there's so little of it. I mean, you know, there's so I mean, little. I mean, there's there is space for the past, right? Yeah. There is, but 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 the past is not a drug, right? You do not want to be drunk on the past because that's obviously not going to lead you anywhere. There's there's clearly space for the past. We need to be informed by it and all of that stuff. But I agree with you. We can't just constantly be chasing the dragon on that. And again, it's around. That's then around who's running the show. Right? Are you running the show or are you an addict of your dopamine because every time you open Twitter or Facebook, you get the hit? Oh, my God. More LinkedIn followers. How many of you have followed me since I've been on stage? Please, please follow me. Well, you know, you, you had an interesting idea that you called the, the personal attention token. Yes. Which, you know, and I get, I get shivers whenever I hear about, a, about yeah. a blockchain. Anything blockchain gets me a little scared. But... Um, Personal attention token was, right. was, was is, is that, 
a, a thing or is that did you mean that more it was as an, an art project well so it, it's very funny that a lot of people thought i was really kind of taking the piss with the personal attention so token so it was just basically an experiment where i tokenized my time into 15 minute units and people could pay me money and they would get 15 minutes of my time and i just prototyped it sort of just on paper and put up a little thing about it because i what i really wanted to understand was if Uber is an archetype and all labor is completely liquid in some hypothetical future, what does that look like? If my time is completely transferable in an open market with your time, with some unit token, not necessarily at the same exchange rate, but through some medium of exchange, what does that look like? So I was really trying to take late capitalism and uh, I guess we could think of neoliberalism to its utter extreme with respect to human labor so at some, and that was not an art project that was me kicking the future until it broke because i wanted to get a look in but the thing i learned actually is that first off it's kind of hard to do because you have to stay on the blockchain to make it work which meant you had to have reference not to any real current i'm sorry as the crypto folks like to call it fiat currency such as the U.S. dollar or the Australian dollar, but you had to use Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, and those things are up and down. Well, now they're just down, but they were up and down. It's like I could sell my time to someone, and then by the time they came to redeem it, it would be a few pennies, which didn't seem like a good proposition. But then the other thing I think I really realized was I just if I was going to do this, I'd just have a good time booking system and build it in WordPress, and there wouldn't need to be any tokens. So it was over-engineering it. But what I wanted to see was what would it be like if everyone had their time and it was all tokenized and it could be exchanged. And, and I got a peek over into that world. And in some ways, maybe we're going to go there if neoliberalism really does manage to colonize human time. And I think this comes back to team human, the way it's managed to do with a lot of other things, then there will be some aspects of that world that will start to filter in. But I've effectively sort of said to the experiment, and I've given, I've sold a couple thousand dollars in tokens and I've had really nice experiences connecting with people who thought they couldn't get to me, right? And I would help them with an idea or help them think through something. So in that sense, it's been a lovely experience, um, but I'm not going to try to do it at scale anymore. Right. No, I mean, it, it, it sort of reminded me of, of Jaron Lanier's vision of... Um that somehow everyone gets paid for every piece of data that they produce in some microtransaction thing. So like, you, you get out of the bed on the left side, and, well, that's valuable to Serta because they want to know what side of the bed people are getting out of. So you're going to get a micropayment of this. It's like, oh, my God, every action every is just, you know, every... But, but all of that would then have to be measured. You'd have to be under surveillance all of the time for right. that to be the case. Now, which won't happen until we're all wearing AR spectacles, which put your spectacles on because, I mean, seriously, those are a reasonable pass at what AR spectacles will look like when Apple comes out with them. The fancy ones, the deep ones. And so, I mean, we're, we're all at some point, probably 2020, 2021, Apple's going to throw their AR spectacles into the market and Facebook will. And the thing about AR, and last time I was at Civic Hall, I gave a talk on this. I don't know if any of you were here. For AR to work, for augmented reality to work, it has to be creating this very, very richly detailed surveillance of the environment because it's mixing the real with the virtual. And so we're all going to be carrying around these intensely powerful surveillance devices. And the thing that's making it slow for AR glasses to come to market is not the projection of the figures. We can do that. It's building all of the surveillance technology into them and integrating that and putting it on our head in some way that doesn't cause a person's brain to melt. So Serto will know which side of the bed you're getting up out of if you're wearing AR spectacles. But if we're wearing the AR spectacles, and this brings me to the, to the last thing I want to ask you about, um, 
you wrote a piece called The Last Days of Reality. I did. You should all read it. It's online. Just Google it. The Last Days of Reality. And it seems like the, uh, you know, if we're all wearing AR glasses, then we get to this, this, this quote from there that I particularly like. As these techniques become universal, meaning when we're all wearing this stuff, with the world now listening to us, then adapting to our wants and whims, while subtly shaping us to its ends, we lose our moorings and become entirely post real. And you wonder why I'm talking about demonologies, right? So this is, and, and this was very much in the context of the rest of the piece talks about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, oh, before any of that was actually public knowledge because you could put the pieces together yeah. even at that point. And so if you have a company like Facebook sitting there and spitting out who knows what, version of reality based on what they think they know about you because of, they've been they've literally been attached to your forehead for some really long period of time so if you have all of that going on and facebook's ai is now feeding you what it thinks it should be feeding you in order to be able to get you to react the way it wants you to react then you really do have this situation happening where you have attached a reality generating machine to you that is coupled to an intelligence system that is designed to subtly and slowly modify what you're experiencing to drive you to a particular output, right? That's scary. Is that technically possible? Where I think we're on the borders, and that's why I wrote the piece, because I just wanted to sort of get it out there. It, it, it clearly will be technically possible. And I guess then the question is, what does that mean for Team Human? What does it mean to be a human and be participating in a connected culture? Now, a lot of people are going to take up AR spectacles because they're going to be a relief from constantly staring down into your smartphone. Because what they're going to do is they're going to take all that data and they're going to place it around you. And so it's going to be seen as a relief because we'll be able to look up again, which is nice, you know, and that will have a certain amount of appeal. But the price you're going to be paying for that is do you understand where your worldview is being generated and to what end? And so this argues that these systems need to be as open and transparent from the beginning as possible because the potential for them is so strong. You know, my concern, though, is since reality TV, which is actually a scripted hoax, since reality TV became reality, Augmented reality will replace reality as well. So I, I, the one thing that will be an interesting danger sign, and it may be a danger sign that things have gone too fast or too far, is that when people prefer to have the view through the augmented reality spectacle so that they basically don't take them off, not because they because they don't want to, because the view of the real is less exciting to them, is less stimulating to them than the view that's coming through. And that, that sounds like it should be science fiction, and I wish it were, but I don't think it is. Thank you, Mark Pesci. Thank you, Doug Rushdoff. For being on Team Human. If, uh, we've got uh, 10 minutes. We're going to invite uh, Penny back up. The... the, the this is, for me, the funnest part, because I get to sit back. But I'm, I was interested in having, if listening to each other, if either of you had a, a question for, for the other, if anything came up that you wanted to pursue 
with Penny when you were listening or the only the only okay please go right ahead um you mentioned it was like in the earlier part of your um your your interview um about how if we treated um the AI the way we treat our children it'd be nicer children aren't treated very nice um and it is a uh it feels like still an uphill battle to provide quality education have no matter where the socioeconomic status of children are that they all have a sort of fair opportunity um and so particularly if they're women in particular but if we have um if we have so much to do with humans how are we going to get anywhere close to having an ai that isn't gonna send us down the demonology track so uh, i think the thing is is that we know we've always have we always known how to raise children i think probably in the last hundred years we've learned a lot more about how to raise children well right this is sort of the end of what we would think of as corporal punishment the beginning of a lot of what winnicott has written about 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 relationship and raising children so we we we're much better informed now than we had been whether we put that into practice, and, and it's funny because we're looking at different timescales, moving the dial on human culture, as you know, is slow. It's slow. It takes generations and generations. And we, I do wonder, we don't have that kind of luxury with artificial intelligence. So, so the question then is, how do we make those conversations one, where we talk about not so much this is the way you must raise your children, but this is what we do here. Right. And, and, and then do we say that around our AIs? Do we get people who are raising AIs? And one of, the, one of my good friends in Australia is a woman named Genevieve Bell, and she's creating the three AI Institute. So it's Autonomy, Agency, and Assurance, which is really around designing AIs in an interdisciplinary way. So there are not just technologists, but there are anthropologists and social scientists and artists and all of this working together, approaching this as an integrated discipline so that we do consider these things. And then that can inform practice. The interesting thing about that is there's a real rational basis for this because that last day assurance, when you build an AI, how do you know it's doing what it was supposed to? How can you be assured of this? We cannot build a world that has lots of artificial intelligences in it if we have no fundamental sense of whether they're going to work well or not. But here's the thing. It's not the first time this has happened. 140, 150 years ago, we were in the same place with steel. So there's a famous bridge in England called the Tay River Bridge, which was built in 1840 out of steel. It fell over, killed a bunch of people. Because we didn't have any engineering practice around how to build steel structures. You look at Manhattan today, well, I guess we've worked that out. So there is a way to be able to move forward in this. But I think that probably what we'll learn at the same time is maybe some better ways to be with our children. And were you thinking of something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, When are you running for mayor? (laughs) Yeah. What are the yeah, and what are the birth requirements? Okay, you, you don't have to be from born here, right? <laughs> I'm not ready for mayor. I actually don't think um, the uh, the political landscape is where I will have more most impact. But right, <laughs> that's my personal opinion about. My well, life. in that case, wow, because it already looks like you're having a lot of impact there. So, so I'll, I'll just put that out there. But um, I, I, I mean, I, I think that you're the kind of politician that I think we would want to see more of because it seems like you're definitely on the side of Team Human in this, and that was, I think, very clear from that. 
Thank you. And I appreciate that. I, it's funny because I don't see myself as very political because I am a political appointee, um, but my background's in international development. And that is actually what we're seeing um, around the country are people that are coming from the community running for, for office. Absolutely. Uh, we got like five minutes. Do people have any uh, questions out here for our, our um, either guest? Yeah. Um, well, I just have a, a confession, really. I, I walked out of my house the other day without my cell phone for the first oh my time. God. In, fi in five years, probably, this appendage wasn't. And I felt two things. Terror? No, no. Oh. Naked and free. But uh, the naked part was uncomfortable. The freedom part was like, wow, no one knows where I am. I don't have to talk to anybody. So it's this like internal conflict in a sense. So how do we, I guess your whole work is how to integrate technology with humanism. But it almost sounds to me like you should probably take one day a week and leave the house with that then you need to take a look at why you feel that way. I mean, really just like conduct a self-investigation around that. Take a look at that from every side and just look at that. Even if you don't do it, just take a look at why is it making you feel like that? It's the, it's the rush. If someone texts me, oh, they know I exist and, you know, that's like, oh, I'm important, you know. It's that sort of insecurity that uh, digital, um, you know, uh, networks and communities give you. If you're not somebody digitally, then you're not anyone. So that's my problem. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole—it's it's a whole lot easier to do it if, when you walk around the city, there's like you can find someone else who's not looking in their phone, because you may—it's weird, but it's like you're the secret underground of people. Oh, I made eye contact with. See ya. Yeah, there's one. Look at everybody. It's like, you know, it reminds me of like after Doug, you go Doug, set up a team human day then when you know you just put the word out. Everyone yeah. in town, don't look at your phone when you're out in public, and we'll all look for each other. We'll find the right. other. Find the others. Find the just yeah by keeping your eyes up. But I mean, that's the other beauty of the beauty of city. I mean, I almost you know forgive more if somebody's way out in the middle of nowhere. I forgive them more for being on. Skype or FaceTime because at least they're connected with other people. But we kind of have no excuse. We're all there's so many people, so many opportunities. So I was on Shanghai Subway rush hour. It was quiet like unto a grave. And I have a photograph of this, all right, because it was massively crowded, quiet unto the grave, everyone staring down into their phone. And they have excellent 4G coverage in the subway in Shanghai because everyone's watching video. Thank you very much. I think I ended up with about eight pages of notes. So Mission accomplished to everyone. Um, my name is Chris. I do something very odd here in New York City. I bring out my telescope and I drop it on the street and I just wait. I don't have any signs that indicate what I'm doing. I just wait. And if someone asks, of course, I let them look. And I, all my notes, I came to the conclusion that I'm doing something right because everyone that follows me on social media, I've met. Every person who stops, I let them take a picture with their phone if they want to share the experience. So I, I got, I'm, ooh, feels good to hear these words coming from you that validate what I'm doing. But guess what? I'm still broke. I'm, I'm unhirable. And I'm 40-something. All right, 40 lots. But the point was is that I think there are probably people here who feel great about what they're doing, but it doesn't work in this world. And we feel like giving up. So more than anything, that's what I, I 
just please, you can take me on the side and tell me. I won't tell anybody, I promise. <laughs> hmm. I mean, how do, you, how do we deal with that? Uh, I mean, future of work as a whole and future of workers, you know, as, is, a, is, a, is a big issue now, you know, and it's not, it's not that we have, oddly enough, it's not that we have such efficient technologies that we don't need people, it's just that we uh, uh, externalize the cost of what we're doing, you know, so yeah, we could, we could do it without workers in the short term, but we still need to throw toxic metals out into a hillside in, in Brazil or use slave labor in Africa to do it. I mean, so are, are, are you involved at all in, 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 are the sustainability goals, do they include the future of work? That's SDG 8. I think the future of work um, is one of the, it's actually one of the priorities for the, the coming year. And I think earlier we were talking about the future of workers and what that means um, in terms of protections in particular, but how do you have workplaces um, that are safe and that allow um, people to succeed? Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. I don't have a response for you. I don't know what to say. I just um, want to thank you for, for sharing that. Can, and for sharing I? what you do with real people in the city. Let them look in the telescope and they can, at night, right? So they can see like the moon and stuff. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll just let everybody know it's, it's called OB Astronomy. It used to stand for Ocean Beach. I did it for about eight years in San Francisco. That's where I got started. So San Francisco, I don't ever want to go back. Please don't make me go. But they inspired me to do that. Someone convinced me to stop letting my telescope gather dust and get out there and share it. And it became the only thing that I look forward to. And I, that's why I love doing it. So thank you. I, I mean, I'm, I, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna try to put this into an economically rational context because I feel like you've asked a good question and you open people to an experience that's joyful. Right? And, and that is serendipitous, and they come across it. You also have the capacity, I think, and I would want you to explore the capacity of being able to tell stories around this. Because experience and stories are currencies in the 21st century because everything else is automated and crap and whatever, right? And so the more that you can do that and the more you can deepen that, I think the more you're going to be able to find an opportunity. I can't give you a golden key for it, but... I feel as though there's something there that you're already in touch with that will present itself for you. And we know that sharing with another person releases more endorphins than sex, so there's that. Hi, I, well we know that now, Doug. <laughs> Uh, so I'm Brennan O'Rear. Thanks for your, your presentations, uh, all of you. I'm wondering, I'm reluctant to think that this may be cause for optimism, um, but sort of riffing on both the prior question and what you were talking about with augmented reality, um, as we get towards increasingly very similar immersive virtual realities, we have a multiplication that sort of screws with the fundamental scarcities that political economy deals with, scarcity of uh, resources, of legitimate coercive capacity, how do we distribute risk, right? Um, given that, I, I absolutely concur that there's a really dystopic and scary direction that AR seems to be going, but at the extreme end of it seems to be the field opens for new play at the political economy space with questions we've struggled with since you know the 17th century or prior. So um, 
is there any reason for optimism there? Okay, so we, Doug and I did play the dystopian angle, but at the same time, one of the reasons that we will want them is because a lot of what we need to do to be able to use our resources wisely is we actually need to be exposed to a lot of information about those resources in real time. And you actually can't get that through a screen of a smartphone. You're actually going to need that in this sort of environment. Now, some of it might be coming through your ears, but you're probably going to need the, the broader interfaces of your eyes as well. And so I actually do kind of feel that there is a path through. That's why I had to kind of point to the dystopia, because I think... As with most big technologies, and AR is the successor to the smartphone, most people are agreed to that, right? There are going to be pluses and minuses. There are going to be gifts and curses that come with it. And I want us to be as clear on the curses, but I'm actually working hard on the gifts as well. So, I, so Because I can see both of them, and I've been waiting for this for a long time, because my entire work in AR and VR has very much been around, wait a minute, we need this as a planetary management tool. Because to do a good job as individuals means having an awareness not just of our own activities and our local activities and our city activities, but of the global activities. It's a lot of information, it's a lot of knowledge, it's a lot of experience to be able to share and to process. And I don't know if it's going to be the solution, but it's part of a solution around it. I want to give people time to meet each other and, and, and find out what various people's needs and, and uh, offerings uh, may be. So first, I just want to thank you, Penny and, and Mark. Here's a, a Team Human tote bag with, 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 a, with a copy of the, of the soon-to-be-published uh, Team Human manifesto inside. With find the others on the back. I feel like I've contributed to an NPR pledge drive now. You thank did, you. Really? Right. Call it. Call Yeah, exactly. Call 212. So you've been on Team Human with Penny Abuardina and Mark Pesci. Thanks to Civic Hall for hosting us this evening. You can find out more about Civic Hall and the opportunities to find the others at civichall.org. Thanks especially to Fiona Tang, Savannah Badalich, and Mika Sifri for organizing the evening and the networking event to follow. Josh Cheptelaine was our engineer. Luke Robert Mason is our virtual futurist. And the show is produced by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.